Welcome to our Bible study here on Wednesday night in the book of Hebrews. We're going to take up next time, or last time, we were giving an introduction on the book of Hebrews. And we understand that it's an epistle, that the author was not named, and we talked a little bit about that. We're going to continue on that thought, and I'm, I'm going to share with you a few reasons as we begin here in the final part of the introduction, why I believe Paul is the writer now, Paul being the writer is not central to you understanding the book. So it's not essential that you agree with me on this issue, okay? So I want to make that very clear. There's sometimes things that are essential. Jesus being divine is essential. Jesus dying for our sins and being physically resurrected is essential. Whether Paul wrote the book of Hebrews or not, it's still in the Bible. It's still the Word of God. Okay, and whether we agree Paul wrote it or not, doesn't matter. I'm just going to share with you why, because I will refer to that from time to time. I may say Paul wrote here. I don't want you to be offended by that if you don't believe that, but just accept it. Look over it. Uh, you should be able to do that. Uh, God gives us grace to do things like that. Um, again, the, the book was written in a type of classical Greek language that Paul did not normally write. He normally wrote in the Kone Greek, the common language of the Greek people. However, he was educated, I believe, fully capable of writing in that form. However, he may have had eye problems at that time, as some have suggested. He may have needed a human secretary, somebody like a Luke, who certainly would have been uh, familiar with the classical writing of Greek. And so it may have been written for that reason in this form. But regardless, let's look at the rest of it. In the annals of the early church father, Origen, pointed out that the thoughts of the book are definitely Paul's. So at least one of the church fathers attributes the book to Paul. Also, the early church, first century church, attributed the book to Paul. Now, to me, that carries a lot of weight how the early church viewed it. Because you have to understand, uh, people who are around when things happen have a much better view of the, than those who are 200 years out. And, and just the recent discussion in our society about the Civil War, the understanding of the causes of the Civil War, we won't go into that, but it's, it's a lot easier for people who are 200 years out or so to get things wrong about issues of history. So they did attribute it to Paul in the first century. Um, the knowledge of the person writing the book definitely had a knowledge of the Olympic Games, the Greek Games, because chapter 12, uh, we are described as a race, running a race, and with an audience. And so this is something we see very common in the epistles of Paul. Uh, he refers to it in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 27 about running and receiving a crown. In Galatians 2, 2 of not uh, being a castaway, not running out of bounds and being disqualified. And so we see a lot of references in Paul's writing also in Philemon 1, 1 and 1 Timothy 1, 2. Uh, all of these correlations to the fact that Paul uh, was familiar with 
athletic games of the Greeks. So whoever wrote the book had that commonality with Paul. The writer also had apostolic authority. Um, it could not have been Peter, as he has declared he only authored two books, 2 Peter 3, 1. Uh, many scholars believe the term that Peter referred to Paul in his writings of many things hard to be understood was directly referring to the book of Hebrews. This is in uh, Peter's second epistle. Um, now, we know this as an absolute truth. The writer had to have extensive background on Jewish culture, and not just knowledge of Jewish culture, but of the ceremony and the sacrifices. In other words, the writer of the book had to be a priest or a religious leader. Paul, indeed, we know from Scripture, he told us himself, was a religious leader. He was of the stock of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a member of the Sanhedrin, Philippians 3.5. And so we know that Paul definitely had the credentials to be this man who was not only knowledgeable of religious customs and Jewish customs, but very knowledgeable concerning the ceremony, concerning religious ideas of the Hebrews. Now, the writer also here is also in prison. Paul was imprisoned. The writer himself is Jewish because he uh, speaks of God speaking to us in the Old Testament, indicating he is Jewish. It would be hard to think of a Gentile writing this book. Uh, most ancient Christians attribute it to Paul. Uh, the arguments in the book are classic Paul. Uh, if you look at this book, what Paul is trying to tell them is how much better the new covenant of grace with Jesus is than the law. Does that sound familiar? Well, if you read Galatians or Romans, it's the same exact idea. He's speaking to those trying to tell them the weakness of the law. And he even uses the same illustration in this book, Abraham, as he does in Galatians and Romans. And so we see it all that, that thread all the way through three books. Now here, Jesus replaces grace as the theme, uh, because Jesus and grace go hand in hand, versus the law. Regardless of whom you accept, though, as authorship, I'm not writing to debate this, but rather just to share the truth that I believe. Uh, I wanted to give an explanation as to why I will probably refer to the writer as Paul. So again, if it bothers you, just look over it. It's not essential uh, to you understanding the book. Now, what was the purpose, again, of the book of Hebrews? Let's look in chapter 13 and verse 22. We're looking at the purpose of the book. And there were many purposes, but one main. Chapter 13, 22, I beseech you, brethren, suffer the word of exhortation, for I have written this letter to you in few words. And the exhortation here, though, although it's exhortive, is one of warning. 
Remember, we talked about the fact that so much of the book is a, is a word. It's encouragement, but it's an exhortation of warning. Why? Because what was about to happen to them? They were about to be destroyed. In 69 A.D., 70 A.D., Titus came. The main theme is to show the superiority of Jesus Christ to the law, and I don't think any Christian has to be convinced of that, at least I hope not, uh, that Jesus was far superior to the law. We follow Jesus today, and you know, the law could do many things, but the law could never make you, the law did not take into consideration making you do works of grace. In the New Testament, we have gifts and grace, and we do a lot of things that the law did not require. So what I'm saying is Jesus in the New Testament and the Holy Spirit and grace far out exceed the law. If you're just keeping the law, you're just keeping those that, that rigid uh, lifestyle of, of just saying, I'm going to keep the Ten Commandments, I'm going to keep this moral code, and that's all you do. You're not doing very much for the Lord. You know, we have to, as Christians, not only live the life, but serve. And that's far more. That's a little bit different. That's why in the New Testament, we're called believer priests. See, the priests were the ones serving God. And so every born-again Christian in the New Testament is a believer priest because he's serving. And that's the great thing about the New Testament. And so, superiority, yes. Other major doctrines of the book teach, of course, the deity of Christ, the dangers of unbelief, the character of God. God is always righteous and faithful, unchangeable, full of veracity. Just, these are just some. God is righteous, unchangeable, full of veracity. That means truth. He cannot lie. The setting of the book we've already discussed. The church there has fallen down. They are forsaking the church, to go back to the old ways of offering sacrifices. Chapter 5, he declares they have, they have now spiritual hearing. Their spiritual hearing has been dulled because of their disobedience and rebellion. They cannot receive all the things that Paul, the writer, is giving to them. It furthermore goes on to state they have moved away from the basic principles of the Word of God. And their major problem is unbelief and lack of focus on Jesus. And boy, there's a lot of truth there for us living the Christian life. If we become distracted by other things, we get pushed in other directions, and we allow that to happen to us, and it certainly can. It's a great, great lesson in Christian living, my friend, if we're going to live for Christ. Amen? Uh, it's an excellent study for any believer trying to grow or move forward in their Christian life. The theme of Christian growth and maturity is a major subject in this in chapters 3 through 6. Hebrews is a book of shadows. As a matter of fact, it declares it so in chapter 10 and many other chapters. How did the ceremonies of the Old Testament Jews foreshadow a Christian faith today? They did. And we'll talk about that. Although the Testaments are divided... The book shows that old and new, listen to me, are the same thought. Okay? Old and new are the same thought. Man could never, over that period of time, listen to me, work out the intricacies 
of all of this and put it together, it could only have been done supernaturally and divinely. When we get into the book, you're going to see that. You're going to see that how in the world could God have taken the tabernacle, laid it out, and have it teach so many things about Jesus and so many things relative to our Christian faith that it can teach us today. Well, see, only God could have worked out details like that. And we talked about uh, a few minutes ago about the 333 prophecies. How, did God, how could God have worked that out? That's a divine thing. You know, when God works out detail after detail after detail, you see his work in it. Uh, we see Jesus, the Son of God, in power revealed as the one holding the universe together. Right in the chapter 1. And only God could do these things. If you follow this study to conclusion with prayer, you should experience a greater faith and maturity in Christ. Today, we are moving away, as they did, back to old lifestyles, back to sin. We are seeing a falling away. Jesus is returning. And what answer can we give? Have we, as it says in chapter 2 here, have we neglected so great a salvation? And that, my friend, is a great question for all of us to ask ourselves as we begin the study of this book. Have we neglected so great a salvation? Well, let's get into the book. Look at chapter 1. We'll read the first, uh, let's read the first four verses. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners, and that means at different times and various ways, spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, but whom he also made the world's who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he by inheritance has obtained a more excellent name than they. First of all, God has spoken to his Son. He continues to speak Today, through his son. Uh, I'd mentioned in one of my sermons about finding my preaching Bibles. And uh, one of the things I, I like in my preaching Bibles is they're all King James and red letter editions. Uh, you say, well, you're a King James. Oh, no, 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 I'm not. I do believe it's a very good text. It's one I've always used. It's one I know. So I use it. But... Uh, I think any pastor using the King James or any other version should also have a knowledge of at least New Testament Greek to help him understand. But I, it's the and you say what you know all the words are inspired, all the Bibles inspired, even the ones that aren't read. I know, but I just like to know when Jesus is speaking. You know, it's just it's just a personal thing, and I just like it. You know, it's just me, and so you don't have to like the red letter King James edition, but that's what I like. And uh, so, but God, it kind of goes on. God is speaking to us through his son. God is still speaking to us through the son. Now, he speaks to the church, but that's his. He speaks to the Holy Spirit. He sent. God is still speaking to us through his son. Through his son 
God is still speaking to us. His Word. The Word was made flesh. He, he's the living Word. So God speaking. God was speaking to those people there at, at Jerusalem. There was a problem, though. They weren't listening. Is there a problem when we don't listen to God? If we don't listen to God for a while, is there a problem? Well, that becomes a very dangerous and serious problem. These people, as I already mentioned, had problems with spiritual hearing. They'd become dull of hearing. They could not hear the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to them. And in their case, had become a very dangerous situation. Now, how did God speak in the Old Testament? Let's talk about that. It's spoken to our fathers, it says here, by the prophets. Yes, he spoke by the prophets. Did he speak by signs and wonders? Burning bushes? Pillars of fire? Clouds by day? Yeah, he spoke by all kinds of means, even through a, a mule or a donkey. Yes, remember that? And so, uh, all kinds of means, you say. <laughs> and I, I've heard people say, oh, if God just showed a miracle. Before you say they had it better, remember, Moses waited 40 years to talk to a bush, a burning bush. I'm glad that we can speak to God daily in our dispensation of time. I'm glad today we speak to God directly. And I didn't mean to say dispensation. I'm not a dispensationalist necessarily, but uh, in this period of time, it is a dispensation, so to speak. And uh, But God speaks to us today, every day. Back then, you couldn't have assurance of that. God came, The Holy Spirit came upon men, came upon Saul. The Holy Spirit left Saul. Well, wouldn't that be something? But the Holy Spirit comes in us and stays there, resides in us. I'm thankful today that we can pray, Jesus, dear Jesus, and he hears us. And Jesus, you just heard me up there. I know that. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for all that you are. Thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for what you've done for this poor sinner here. And, and lifting me up and allowing me to be to serve you. Thank you, Jesus. He knows what we need of, and we have assurance according to 1 John, he will answer that. And God spoke here, it says in verse 1, by many different ways, more than he ever. Adam and Eve spoke to God face to face before they sinned. Ezekiel had visions. Daniel and Joseph had dreams. It's not known directly how God communicated with Noah. Did you ever think about it? It sounded like, maybe like they sat and had a conversation. But by means of, somehow, God spoke to him. And remember, God sometimes appeared as a man in the Old Testament and spoke. And interestingly enough, Abraham sees the man come through his uh, sees the men come through his uh, uh, camp and he stops one of them and has a conversation asks where they're going two of them were angels but the third was the lord himself in human form because why how do we know well does abraham have a conversation with him call him lord will you destroy the wicked with the righteous he acknowledges him and God as God bows before him. Now, we find Abraham only doing that with one other person. 
And that's Melchizedek. It makes us wonder if Melchizedek was Jesus and whether he recognized him. Uh, I believe that Abraham saw Christ several times. And I believe by the time in chapter, I believe it's chapter 18 of Genesis, when he saw Jesus in human form or saw the Lord in human form, what we would call Christophany, uh, I believe he knew who he was. I don't think when he looked at the three men, he had to guess. He knew exactly who he was. And he said, that's why he jumped up and said, where are you guys going? Otherwise, he might have let them just walk on through. And so he recognized him as Lord. So all, God spoke at all kinds of different means. Uh, but today, through means of the Holy Spirit, I want to share just a couple of verses with you in John. If you'll turn to John fourteen twenty six. It says this, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said to you. Let me read that again. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said Unto you. And then in John 16, verse 13, Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you in all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. Oh, okay. So, we see the work of the Holy Spirit in speaking to us. And that is the same as Jesus speaking to us, because Jesus left so the Holy Spirit might come. He says, I, Jesus said, I will send the Holy Spirit in my name. So, yes. And when he speaks, he will speak of me. So, yes, when the Holy Spirit speaks, same as Jesus. So, when it says here, today, in these last days, that's now. God is still speaking to the world through his Son today. Okay? Now, I know you have considered the power of God, and the power of God that we know first is the power of God and the salvation through Jesus. Amen. And we know that, but have you ever considered the power of God? And these verse 2 and 3 are made aware of several very important facts. The fact that one, that we learn also in the book of John, he was in the world, the world was made by him, but the world knew him not. Remember that? That's in John 1. Uh, 1, 1, and uh, 3, I think. No, that's... But anyway, it says here that Jesus is the author of creation. Um, and so it says it, says it right, right here. Uh, whom he hath appointed heir for all things, by whom he also made the worlds. The worlds were created by Jesus and the Father together. And a matter of fact, it was a triune event. How do I know this? If you go to Genesis 1 and you read the first thing in the beginning, God, and it uses a plural form of one, Elohim. That means three. Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Then it goes on and says, And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the water. So we see, what? 
we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all in creation. So we know, and God spoke and said, let there be light, that this is definitely a triune event. The creation was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit cooperating in unity for creation. And it says, not one thing was made without Jesus. It says that John. So he, in his power, Jesus as the second person of the Trinity, holds the same creative power. And by the way, don't you know it? Every power that Jesus has, the Father has. And the Spirit has. Uh, the Father doesn't have a say. Well, you know, I got this power and Jesus doesn't have it. That can't be. Uh, the best way I can illustrate it, and I've done it before, is I take a pitcher of water with three glasses. And I pour water and three glasses out of that pitcher, and say, which one's water? They're all the same. They're the same essence. And all of them belong to the pitcher. And you pour them back in, they're all one again. And then you pour them into three, three. You know, and that's the way the Trinity works. Whatever quality one has, the other has. Just understand that. Also, the second thing here, upholding all things, verse 3, by the word of his power. The creative power is also a sustaining power. That's in Colossians 1.17. By him all things consist. It's the same idea. It's hard to imagine, if you will, he looked up from, from his manger. And I've always wondered about this. And as a babe, maybe in that first hour, if he could see at that time, here's a baby could look up and see the sky he created. That of itself is strange indeed. Strange indeed. He walked on the earth he put together, yet he restricted his power and held the great power within himself and died as a servant, Philippians 2. It's truly a magnificent thought when you dwell on it and think about it. What else could he do with, with his tremendous power? It says here he purged our sins. The word here used means he cleansed us from sin. He cast the residue, the dross, the ugly away from our presence. That's what purged means. Of course, one who is everything the Father is can do that. He is, in essence, the same as the Father. They're both fully God. And this verse bears it out. I think I'm going to stop right there. And we'll take up next time again with Jesus and who he is in chapter 1.